Hello and welcome to another installment of The Scrum, our WGBH News political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and this week we've got something a bit different for you. Two days after Donald Trump surprised most of us by winning the presidency, Peter Kadzis and I were part of an event at Cambridge's Brattle Theater that was organized by TheEditorial.com, a website specializing in long-form interviews. The event was titled simply, What Now?, and featured several different perspectives on the election and the coming Trump presidency. You'll hear first from Robert Pinsky, the former National Poet Laureate, who started things off by reading a poem that he found appropriate for the occasion. Then you'll hear from Heidi Legg, editor of TheEditorial.com, who introduces the rest of the night's panel. John Feynman, the founder of a Boston organization that does weight training with former gang members. Jill Forney, a Cambridge psychotherapist. And Kelsey Wirth, a climate activist and co-founder of the group Mothers Out Front. Take a listen. Hello, everybody. I am Robert Pinsky. And I'm going to get things started by reading to you. This is the poem that Walt Whitman wrote about the very ugly election of 1884. It's the election of Ma Ma, Where's My Pa, and the White House, Ha Ha Ha, and Rome, Romanism and Rebellion. So Walt Whitman, Election Day, November 1884. If I should need to name O Western world, your powerfulest scene and show. T'would not be Niagara, not you, you limitless prairies, nor your huge rifts of canyons, Colorado, nor you, Yosemite, nor Yellowstone, with all its spasmic geyser loops ascending to the skies, appearing and disappearing nor Oregon's white cones, nor Huron's belt of mighty lakes, nor Mississippi's stream. This seething hemisphere's humanity, as now I'd name, the still small voice vibrating, America's choosing day. The heart of it not in the chosen, the act itself the main, the quadrennial choosing. The stretch of north and south aroused, seaboard and inland, Texas to Maine, the prairie states, Vermont, Virginia, California, the final ballot shower from east to west, the paradox and conflict, the countless snowflakes falling, a swordless conflict. Yet more than all Rome's wars of old, or modern Napoleon's, the peaceful choice of all, or good or ill humanity, welcoming the darker odds, the dross. Foams and ferments the wine, foams and ferments the wine, it serves to purify, while the heart pants, life glows. These stormy gusts and winds waft precious ships, swelled Washington's, Jefferson's, Lincoln's sales. He doesn't say anything sweet or sentimental about joking, uh, voting. He talks about how powerful it is. Um, I'm going to read two other things to you, both quite short. 
I'm going to read a poem by the Nicaraguan poet Ernesto Cardinal in a good translation by Donald Walsh. It's only eight lines. And um, Nicaragua, of course, has a lot more experience than we do of um, many ugly things of a political nature, including results of elections. The poem is entitled... Somosa unveils Somosa's statue of Somosa at the Somosa Stadium. <laughs> it's not that I think the people raised this statue to me. No. Because I know better than you that I ordered it myself. Nor that I have any illusions about passing on with it to posterity. No, because I know the people will one day tear it down. Nor that I wished to erect to myself in life the monument you'll not erect to me in death. I put up this statue just because I know you'll hate it. <laughs> and uh, having had Whitman's qualified reservations... Uh, about the ballot, though he celebrates it. And having read that poem about showmanship and totalitarianism, um, Whitman ends by appealing to history, to Washington, Jefferson, and last of all, his hero, Lincoln. And uh, I'm going to read a few passages to you from uh, Abraham Lincoln's favorite, uh, his famous... Uh, second inaugural address that reflects, among other things, on the history of uh, slavery. One-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was, somehow, the cause of the war. To strengthen, perpetuate, and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the Union even by war, while the government claimed no right to, the more, to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it. Neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained. Both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. And then the famous uh, peroration, which would be the last thing you'll hear from me till the panelists, fellow panelists come on. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in. 
to bind up wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish, that may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I know people have a lot of emotions running. We're going to give you a chance to be part of the conversation, but we have some incredible voices up here, and I'd like to introduce them. Um, Peter Katzis, who actually brainstormed on this night with me four weeks ago. I thank you, Peter, for bringing GBH into the fold. He's the senior editor at WGBH News, and uh, I'm sort of starstruck, starstruck because he spent 25 years running the Boston Phoenix. Um, we have Adam Riley, also my co-host at the other end, Adam is um, the host of the Scrum, the political podcast at GBH News with Peter. And um, you just heard from the wonderful Robert Pinsky. Robert, thank you for coming up from New York today on the train, even though you live here in Cambridge, uh, just to be here with us and for those poems. Um, I think that they were uh, something we all needed. And John Feynman, the founder of Inner City Weightlifting. I'm excited for you to learn about John if you don't know about him already. He does amazing work in this city with... Um, urban youth. Um, Jill Forney, we pulled up on the stage uh, today because we felt that wherever we were going, um, people were feeling very uh, raw about the surprise of how the election turned out. Uh, some people are very celebratory in parts of the country. How do we process that? Um, she is a psychotherapist um, here in Cambridge, and we're really delighted to have her with us. And Kelsey Wirth, um, who I really am interested to hear from tonight on climate change because um, things have very much changed with this um, new president, I'm guessing. So we have a very good group. There are a lot of things to cover. We're going to try and have about 30 minutes of chat up here with our, amongst ourselves with you guys, and then we're going to let you ask them questions. So um, thank you for being here, and let's get to it. Should I just say a couple comments to start out? So I need to try to glom on to uh, Peter's star power because Peter hired me to work at the Boston Phoenix, what, 14 <laughs> years ago? And it was then, and I think will probably always be the job I was most excited to get, by which I mean no disrespect to my current job as a reporter at WGBH, which I like a lot. But uh, that was a, a huge thrill to start out at the Phoenix. Um, I will just say very briefly that I wasn't expecting the outcome that we had on Tuesday night either and have been trying to figure out, like probably all of you, how to make sense of it. I have been obsessed today. I don't know how many people out there, uh, how many of you saw video of Donald Trump and President Obama after they met today? Okay. I have been thinking about that video all day long and I don't know how to interpret it. Um, if you didn't see it, uh, and if you haven't heard about it, essentially, they went into this meeting, which lasted like an hour and a half, something like that, longer than apparently than it was supposed to. And they came out and sat side by side. And, and the president-elect, who has said that the president is the founder of ISIS, along with Hillary Clinton, and spent many years saying that the president was not, in fact, born in the United States. Um, in their comments after the meeting, Donald Trump talked about what a wonderful conversation they'd had, what respect he has for President Obama, what a great man he is, how he looks forward to speaking with him frequently in the future and, and 
receiving counsel from him. It was the most surreal political moment I think I've seen in my entire life. And a, a part of me, as someone who has been deeply concerned about Trump's authoritarian tendencies over the course of this campaign, a part of me thought, oh, well, th that's great because what it shows is that Donald Trump, uh, when he said troubling things over the course of the campaign, he was just doing what he needed to do to get elected, and really he didn't necessarily believe them, and he's sort of a traditional American politician. When you get right down to it, maybe he's a crypto-Democrat because he wants to protect Social Security and, and improve the nation's infrastructure. But another interpretation, I don't think it's the only other one, but, but the other interpretation that's been going through my mind is Donald Trump is a totally situational politician whose priority is pleasing whoever he happens to have as an audience. So when he's addressing an audience of people who want Hillary Clinton imprisoned, he says with total sincerity that he thinks he, uh, there should be a special prosecutor who pursues her after the election, and he's totally on board with the chance of lock her up. And then he sits down with the president and wants to please him. Um, and if that's the case, it's a much darker scenario because then the question becomes when Donald Trump is running the country, who are the various, what are the various factions that are going to be vying to, to have Trump want to please them and who is he ultimately going to decide he wants to please? Is it going to be Ivanka who wants paid uh, parental leave or is it going to be, I, I always forget which son retweets Alex Jones and InfoWars content uh, is it going to be Steve Bannon from Breitbart who ran a race-baiting news site for the past few years before going over to work on the Trump campaign and now may be poised to become chief of staff? I'm going on too long, but that's where my head is at. Um, I'm trying to figure out how concerned uh, those of us who, who are perturbed by some of Trump's tendencies should or should not be at this point in time. And I honestly don't know the answer, and now I will shut up and pass the mic No, no, to no. You. I mean, I think you framed it because we... Um we were, I think we're all reeling, and, and I, I hate to put you on the spot first, Kelsey, but I mean, you started a thing around climate change. Uh, you are, Mothers Out Front is all about climate change, and you've been starting to make some real headway. What does this look like for you? How does this feel? What are, what, where's your head? Can you even process yet? Um, well, first of all, uh, uh, let me say it is Great to be here with all of you, so thank you for showing up on a Thursday night on an evening when a lot, a lot of people are home still trying to um, recover from the events of Tuesday evening, so thank you for being here. Um, I, I have to say, I, uh, my feelings about this evening shifted quite dramatically when we knew the outcome of the election, and I was talking to Sam, my husband, walking over here think, saying, how does one provide a sense of hope um, given the reality of a Trump presidency when it comes to climate change. So here are a few thoughts, and I'm not going to uh, view the situation through rosy lenses or be Pollyannish about it at all, because I think the truth is it's going to be a very challenging time, and we are going to move backward when it comes to addressing climate change. Um, just to set the broader context, Let's think about where we are as a nation and as a world when it comes to addressing climate change. We are not making anywhere close to the rate of progress that we need to make in order to protect our children and our grandchildren. That is not happening, even with the Paris Climate Agreement, even if the, clean, the president's clean power plan goes into effect. None of those actions are nearly where we need to be. So 
regardless of who won on Tuesday evening, what we need most in this country is a massive number of people who care passionately about their children uh, to demand that our political leaders take bold action on climate change. That situation does not change. So we need that more than ever, yes, but we already needed that. Um, I think we're definitely going to see a lot of backward, uh, as I said, movement. Having said that, we don't know, back to what Adam pointed out, we don't know what Trump's positions are on just about anything, actually. Um, he's not an ideologue, as my husband Sam has reminded me in order to comfort me. Um, and our children. He is not. He is not on a dialogue. We don't know what his policy positions are. Um, in 2009, he and his children signed a New York Times full-page ad calling for President Obama to take aggressive action on climate change in 2009. That's kind of Fascinated. I think maybe he's the greatest comman that ever lived. Well, in 2012, he tweeted, if you haven't seen this go viral, that um, he thinks the Electoral College uh, ruins democracy. So, I mean, he is someone who consistently changes his mind. So, so, so I think what we really need to watch is a couple things. We need to watch who he puts in to important positions in his administration, and that's going to be very telling. Um, we need to keep in mind that government moves slowly, so nothing dramatically horrible is going to happen right away. And again, I come back to my main point, which is that we need to do more of the kind of work that Mothers Out Front, frankly, is doing, which is to build an engaged and activated constituency that is going to fight for what we know we have to do to protect our children. Can I, and my goal here is not to make you more pessimistic than you are, but I have to ask you, well, Donald Trump's positions on a number of fronts are, are incredibly inconsistent. He has said, though he's sort of walked it back, that climate change is a hoax invented by China and make us less competitive, make American industry less competitive. He has said that he'd like to abolish the EPA, and he has said unequivocally that he's going to, one way or another, render the Paris Agreement moot if elected, and now he's been elected. So those are some pretty clear positions he's taken recently. Okay. So, so first of all, he can't render the climate agreement moot. Uh, the U.S. cannot take it itself out of the climate agreement for another three to four years. That's just the way it's written. So he can't do that. He can decide not to move forward on implementing what is in the climate agreement, what the U.S. has agreed to in the climate agreement. So that is certainly possible. Um, what were your other points? Climate change is a hoax. Climate change is a hoax. Okay, so climate, a, climate change is a hoax. We're going to get rid of the EPA. This is, this is red baiting, right? I mean, he, he is throwing stuff at Americans and a particular segment of America that they want to hear that he knows is going to sell his message to them. Does he really believe that? We don't know, but I think it's premature to say that Donald Trump is going to get in there and try to take away the EPA. So we don't know that. And the other important thing is that the vast majority of Americans, again, want us to be taking a more aggressive action on climate change. They believe the science, actually, uh, and they hold close to their hearts, as close as almost any other issue out there, clean water, clean air, 
clean communities and healthy children. And, and Donald Trump is not going to be able to take that away from the American public. I do not believe that is the case. I am very hopeful when it comes to people rising up to protect what they feel is absolutely core to their, to their families and, again, to their children. I'm going to ask John a question because um, some of these topics, um, we're going to talk to Peter about journalism, uh, they're, they're very election-based. You're dealing with inner-city kids all the time. Does this election affect them? Is this, is this what they're thinking about? Um, can you tell us what you, you know, from your perspective, uh, ha- it does it change anything? And if it does, what? Yeah, uh, so specifically, uh, we work with the less than 1% of young people that are driving more than 50% of gun violence. So most of our students have been shot. Nearly all have done significant jail time, and they're coming from family incomes of less than $10,000 per year. And I say that because, you know, when Trump came down that escalator, unfortunately, in in 2015, I've been predicting that he was going to become president. And the reason why is while our students certainly do not agree with Trump and and are not Trump supporters, they felt left out. It doesn't matter who's in office. Nothing is actually reaching them. And my fear was that Trump was going to reach people in more rural areas who feel just like that left out and are going to make decisions to put someone who's at least connecting with them in a meaningful way because they haven't been connected with before. Um, and you know, I think it's unfortunate because Trump has come to symbolize hatred and, and racism in, in many places of this country. And our students were uh, talking uh, Monday, uh, uh, sorry, Wednesday, and you know, they start joking around and, and you know, when they're walking around and, and someone's looking at them and they're wondering, oh, I wonder if that person is racist, they, they joked and they say, well, now we know. Um, so you know, sadly, this, this doesn't impact them. It just highlights the reality that they, they've always known. And um, yeah, I do want to say one thing because this is why I'm so hopeful. Uh, in our gym every day, we have people coming in from six and seven figure backgrounds, paying our students to train them. And because they know them as a person, for the first time, they care in a meaningful way. They invite our students out to dinner with, with their own family. They invite them into their homes. They take them out for coffee. And these are people who have never known anyone that's gone to jail, never mind been shot, never mind someone who's a gang member. Uh, and you know, I, I don't like that term because they're just young people um, bonding together in a support system because other people haven't shown them the same support. So you know, to answer your question, unfortunately, it doesn't affect them. Um, what about the piece that now they think that, you know, uh, well, not half the country because the popular vote was for Hillary, but um, a very large swath of the country in their eyes is racist. What do they do with that? Uh, it just highlights the reality. And they've, they've been fighting against that from the moment they, they were born. Uh, and I think that, you know, my, my hat's off to our students and what they've been able to overcome just to get to where they are today. And it's not to say that we agree with every decision that, that uh, they might have made along the way, but the fact that they can fight through it, that they can still wake up and, and go to work and, and try to find that, that better path, they've overcome more than I'll ever have to come in my entire life. And, and that, to me, is incredibly hopeful because it shows us that given the context of everything this country is going through right now, we as people have a power to connect with each other and care for each other and rather than acting on fear, start to turn that fear into understanding so that we understand why these decisions were made, and then we can find meaningful solutions from there. John, can I ask you a super quick question? One of the things that I've been reading about over the past two days is cases across the country, including here in Massachusetts, in which uh, people with 
racist views seemingly feel liberated in the wake of the election to to uh, verbally or physically or both attack people for their race or their religion uh, or their ethnicity. Have your students reported experiencing that yet at all? Uh, they experience it every day. I think you even look at everything uh, that's happening in the news before this election. Um, you know, some of the shootings that we see on TV, that, this is nothing new, un- unfortunately. Uh, it's just now it's caught on camera. Now it's caught in an election showing and confirming what our students have, have always had to go through. And, you know, they don't get enough credit for what they have to overcome every day to get past people's and, and, and society in general, of course, not everyone, but uh, these perceptions that keep them segregated and isolated. I'm going to ask um, Jill and Robert to both have a microphone because I'm going to ask you both a question, and then I'm going to hand my mic over to Peter, and I'm going to let Peter tell us a little bit about um, the, talk a little bit about the media. Um, but uh, on what John's talking about, um, can you two weigh in as a poet and a psychotherapist who are close to uh, the human, you know, um, psyche and nature? Uh, how isolation seems like a problem that we need to look at closely, not just by the digital world, but the isolation that clearly we're seeing through this divide, that we're isolated from each other. We're in a bubble, they're in a bubble. You know, we're saying that they're racist, they're saying we are not racist just because we voted for Trump. There's just, there's all of this sort of isolation and division. Can you give us some sort of comfort or direction on how we process that feeling of isolation um, as, as humans right now? No big deal. Uh, You want comfort. Um, We're all feeling isolated and marooned. So, So, yeah, uh, I'm going to put that to the side just for a moment. Um, uh, I've been thinking for some time, specifically as I see it show up, in my practice, but I think it's a, um, a broader issue, this question of um, disconnection. And it really feels like a pervasive uh, public health emergency, a mental health emergency, um, an environmental emergency, a political emergency, a kind of global, um, and I don't mean to be over dramatic as much as to say that it's we're disconnected from each other, we're disconnected from our bodies, we're disconnected from where our food comes from, we're disconnected because we spend so much time on our screens. I mean, it's sort of all over the place. Um, And when I think about this, particularly in the context of uh, mental health, and um, it's interesting, uh, Sebastian Younger wrote a book that came out last spring called Tribe, and there are lots of things in that book, but um, one of my takeaways is that he uh, was sort of re-describing the trauma that um, uh, people in military combat suffer when they, actually when they come back, um, is not what they've, uh, not what they've encountered when they've been um, in combat, but a loss of um, a sense of interconnectedness, and you know, tribe can carry some um, some other connotations, which are tough. But in in so far as it's a sense of interconnected, interreliance, uh, 
doesn't really matter if I like you or not, we're all in this together sort of thing, uh, that when they come back to the U.S., and maybe the U.S. in particular, uh, it is a culture of deep individualism and self-reliance. Um, and there are, lots of, uh, there are lots of great things that go along with that, but uh, they also can breed a sort of feeling of I'm on my own. Um, and that the, the trauma, there is something traumatic about feeling very much on your own. Um, and I think that this is part, this is one way that I understand um, what's uh, sort of how we ended up with the result that we did. Um, and also what we're all suffering with now is a profound and deep sense of disconnection. And uh, I, I was, I was um, taken with uh, Kelsey's words about the need for uh, an active and engaged citizen, citizenry um, because I think that, that if there's an antidote or if there's a path forward that it really is in a kind of stepping out and stepping in and... Um, uh, not being so comfortable uh, in the service of connecting, uh, and I think about this actually interpsychically also, um, that um, we all tend to shut down and split off from things that are too much or overwhelming or um, frightening or disturbing, uh, which can be super adaptive, but also leaves us as sort of less than full human beings um, and with a less than full ability to connect and be and uh, uh, sort of be a, a full human being in the world and receptive to other full human beings in the world. So I think more about disconnection. I don't know if that's, um, I don't know that I can provide comfort, but... Those are my thoughts about disconnection. That, that's helpful because it carries us to think about, to just be more aware of it and watch ourselves doing it. Robert, what do you, what do you see when you see this great divide that's going on and, 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 and what we can learn from humanity and the, the past great thinkers and writers? I'm going to struggle to be much more pragmatic. I have immense respect for everything that Jill said, and I think the screens and the dissociation and the rest is true. But... I, though I'm going to speak on behalf of imagination, I'm going to try to do it practically. I'm going to try to use the authority of being, I think, the oldest person on the stage, possibly in the room. <laughs> and I have devoted my life to trying to use my imagination. I believe in imagination. I am not gay. I'm not Muslim. I'm not a woman. But I can imagine what it might be like to be a gay Muslim woman who is anxious about many reproductive rights and related issues and fearful just for one's life and one's safety and that of other people one cares about. And that seems to me a practical matter. I am old enough to have, I don't think I remember Father Coughlin on the radio, but I certainly I grew up in New Jersey near Fort Monmouth where a lot of my parents' friends were uh, left-wing Jewish working-class people associated with uh, Fort Monmouth where a lot of people lost their jobs and livelihood. It was probably the most publicized one after the Hollywood blacklist. And McCarthy was defeated and lynching was reduced and uh, 
segregation in the South and sitting in the back of the bus, that did not change through uh, spiritual progress. We are much better. It would have been hard to believe in the 50s when McCarthy seemed a real strong threat that someday we would have a black president. And those improvements took place because of people's courage and risk and actual legal cases. They took place because of, I think of the line in that um, Cardinal poem that I read. I can't quite do it in Spanish, but Somoza says, uh, I know the people are going to tear this down someday. I know the people are going to tear this down someday. And I don't know anything. uh, The Trump discussion seems to be, on the one hand, he's blown by the wind, so then we have to be the wind. I saw that this week. But on the other hand, I go back to imagining that I'm Muslim, I'm gay. I, you know, any number of things. I'm not reassured by seeing him and Obama say nice things to one another. If I imagine myself being that person, I see it and I'm not comfort, I'm not reassured. I say, I want a lawyer to help me. I want an organization. I want to know what are the laws involved here. What do I do practically, not simply in imagination? What are the institutional resources that I have? And uh, I'm happy to imagine, I think it's a wonderful work of imagination that John did. When you look at your students, then you imagine people with low incomes out in the, that part of western Pennsylvania that's the equivalent of Alabama. I am willing to try to imagine that too. But it seems to me what is really the point is to do practical work, either to be the wind or if it turns out to be adamant fascism, which often I watch is, you know, I I feel like one of my barometers would be, is he really going to make Giuliani attorney general? Then I feel, yes, we have to fight a, a fascist insurrection, practically, just as whatever political fights are. And, you know, Every two years, we do get to change the government in this country. And with control of uh, both houses of Congress and the presidency, whatever happens, the Republicans are going to be responsible for it. And if they screw up, then in two years, there's an opportunity to change it. We're going to bring Peter into the conversation, but I think that what Robert Pinsky just said leads us um, back afterwards to both John and Kelsey to give us some practical things that we can be doing for your causes and groups. So Peter, from a political point of view, what the hell happened? <laughs> oh, thanks. I've got the really depressing question. With the whole, I think we have to first put politics in the cultural context. And um, Trump didn't just spring fully blown into being. Um, he's a cultural phenomenon. Um, an unfortunate one. Um, I, I remember from uh, as a young man reading Orwell that I'm supposed to avoid the word inevitable, but maybe St. George will forgive me this time. In my view, Trump is a sort of inevitable manifestation of an extremely crude and coarse culture. Um, and it's a culture that is, um, you can track it in the media and the media itself is, is, 
seriously skewed these days, and it skews a, a, around the, 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 it's just like an income inequality chart. You have, you know, the, the lower common denominator broadcast and print vehicles. Um, those are read by people with less income and less education. And then you have the, the upper sphere, which are uh, read by people with high levels of education and high levels of income. It's, it's sort of spooky that if you, if you layered these charts on top of each other, you'd see what happens. Now, of course, no one in the media, on the print side, or the broadcast side, the serious side of the business, is really making much money these days. Um, really? <laughs> Uh, well, as someone who's had a, a one successful paper shot out from under him, um, uh, in, in earlier, 15 years earlier in New York, when I was involved, unfortunately, in the, the first big, well, more than 15, 30 years ago, the first big round of layoffs when things, we didn't know what was happening. We just thought it was part of a bad recession. Uh, this has been going on for a while. The, the, the media retraction has big cultural um, implications because, look, when I was growing up, when many of us were growing up, everyone read the same newspaper or newspapers that were very similar, um, the, the same comic strips, similar sports pages, similar front pages. These daily newspapers um, were a common thread that helped stitch society together. They're gone or are going. I mean, there's nothing we can do about it. That's past history. But anyway, back to my main point, which is that, you know, Trump is the product of a very coarse culture that we all live in. Um, bearing that in mind, I'd say three things. I mean, there are many factors, but, but there are three factors that I'll, I'll list in, in no particular um, you know, sense of, import, uh, of importance. One, there's the mechanical, the organization factor. Um, Hillary Clinton's organization, the Democratic Party's organization, wasn't as good as they thought it was. Um, by the way, the, 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 the popular vote is, point, is, is a quarter of a percentile. The electoral is different. Let's just use the popular vote as an indicator. The organization wasn't as strong as everyone thought. Two, um, Hillary Clinton herself. Um, I have to say that I'm personally astounded that about the number of women who did not vote for her. Um, I thought in a, a very reductive and somewhat old-fashioned way that just as the Roman Catholics in my neighborhood in Dorchester universally voted for John Kennedy and just as every African-American person I know voted for Obama because of that. I assume that, you know, all educated women would vote for Hillary Clinton. That didn't happen. Why? All I can say, and I, I say this gently, because um, it is that the, the Hillary Clinton has many splendid characteristics, but she doesn't engender that passion in enough people, she does in many, but not in enough people, and say the same way that Barack Obama did. Um, and the third is going to be perhaps controversial, but I think the whole sort of testy issue of identity politics enters into this. 
And what we saw happen in this election was the, it's not just the white working class, but l let me just use that shorthand phrase as a, as a, a, a cheap shortcut, because that's what it is. But um, the white working class, almost on, on mass or in sufficient numbers, decided that they were going to act like a, ma a minority interest group. And that's what happened. Adam can tell you earlier this year, I was never able to figure it out, but as long ago as a year ago, I had this sense that the white working class vote was going to matter in some way. I never figured it out. Unfortunately, it was figured out for me that day. But that, that briefly, you know, those are the three mechanical things that I think are important. But I would not under, underestimate just the I, I sound I sound like my father. I sound like an old prig saying this. The 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 the, the baseness and crudity of our culture. And by the way, popular culture had an insight into this. Um, the Simpsons, back 16 years ago, had Donald Trump off stage characterized as the President of the United States. Now Lisa, when she came into office, was responding to the debt crisis that President Trump had <laughs> engendered. But um, the Simpsons crew saw something long before we supposed political pros did. Right, you the yeah. Can I just hop in follow up on one thing Peter said? One of the best articles I read, and, and as, as you all know, there's been a lot of back and forth on social media and elsewhere in the wake of the election about whether the press did a good job or did a bad job, whether the media succeeded or failed. And I, I happen to think that there was, a, you know, there was some reckless journalism done and there was also some exemplary journalism done. One of the best pieces I read, and many of you will have seen it too, was a Wall Street Journal piece that ran a couple weeks before the election that talked about the counties in the U.S. where Trump... Uh, had outperformed expectations and, and was poised to, to do very well on election day. And they were counties in which, they, they were hev formerly heavily white counties in which there might or might not have been economic struggles, but frequently people were doing okay economically, but they'd su they had experienced a higher than usual demographic change in the past decade or two. So they'd seen a lot more, you know, used to be all white, and all of a sudden a lot more people of color, in particular uh, Latino immigrants, were coming to work in factories or in local industries. And, and uh, the implication, correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, but I think that the reporters made a pretty good case that there was a demographic anxiety closely linked to support for Trump, which wasn't necessarily linked to real economic anxiety. It was more about a perception that their culture was changing uh, than it was that they were struggling economically. Now, it's not that those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Just one other point I want to make quickly. This, and this might come up in the discussion, I think that this whole election has made the press agonize about a lot of deeply held assumptions that we have, in particular the notion, and we were talking about this at the outset, um, offstage, that, that we are supposed to be objective and the question of what objectivity means. You can, on the one hand, take objectivity to mean that you've got two candidates running against each other, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and any story you do should contain a couple pro-Clinton points and a couple pro-Trump points. So that's 
objectivity as balance. The other notion of objectivity that one could embrace, and this is one that I happen to be sympathetic to, maybe because I come from opinion journalism before going to WGBH, is objectivity as clarity and accuracy and moral honesty. And I think that those are two competing conceptions of objectivity that don't necessarily, they, they can't necessarily be reconciled. And there is an ongoing conversation in the press about, as Donald Trump takes over the presidency, which conception of objectivity we should be hewing to. So that's, I, I just wanted to throw I, I think, that in there. I, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting. And um, I feel like the crudeness that you said your father would have talked to you about, um, I, I, I really can't believe how much the language has changed just this year. And, and Robert, I look to you on that. You know, what happens to a society's vernacular when we're given permission by these leadership um, people, these leaders, to uh, speak the way we have? How, how do you look at language after this election? And, 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 and do you think that we'll be impacted? I'm going to be reactionary again. I think language changes all the time. And uh, print froze it. Language used to be much more fluent. We have an egotism about the present that we change language so much. Our technology tends to freeze language. It changes slower. And I don't think people uh, speak, they certainly speak in different ways, not necessarily worse ways. And if people say fuck more often than they used to, they use it in the New Yorker, they'll probably soon be using it in the uh, New York Times. It's not important. It's not important. I, I don't think, uh, I think, there's certainly such a thing as stupidity, but that that lecture that uh, Whitman's implicit, he, he, you read about Blaine versus Grover Cleveland. I mean, Grover Cleveland was paying to support some some prostitute had had an illegitimate child. It may have been a friend of his he was paying for. The things people wrote about that mm -hmm. and songs they made up. And Blaine apparently, from the things I've read, Blaine just took bribes, and it was on record that he did. And um, people were stupid enough to vote for him in big numbers. So I resist by nature. I resist the idea uh, that um, we're worse or better. I tend to be a classicist in that way. Le plus de change. And now it may be that we're, our country is going to be a little bit more a little bit more, not I hope not a lot more, a little bit more like the Nicaragua, in which Cardinal and uh, other, you know, poetry very important in that country have talked to many, uh, uh, you know, they have a dictatorship now that's basically run by somebody who was a hero of the democracy movement at one time. And um, we may have to cultivate our gifts for satire, right. and we may need to emulate uh, Ernesto Cardinal, more than we used to need to. But I don't think it means that our language is debased or ruined. Uh, so there's always been eloquence, there's always been eloquence and accuracy, and there's always been stupidity and obfuscation. Uh, I'm not sure that the proportions change a lot. Can I make a quick plug? Mm -hmm. um, which is, I spend a lot of time trying to pay attention to what people across from me are thinking and feeling and saying but not saying. And I'm looking out at the audience, and I, I would really like to hear from them. Let's do it. <laughs>
So we invite you up. There's a mic here, or if you prefer to just stand up. Um, you, we've now introduced you to all the people and the different topics you can touch on. So um, we'd love to hear from you. Hi. Um, so thank you all for being here. And I can tell you the reason, one of the key reasons why I came tonight is this feeling that I'd love to do something, but it's hard to figure out what to do. And when, when any of you say things like get involved, you know, find an organization, uh, you know, I, I can tell you I have a kid who's a junior in college. She was at a protest last night. I have a son in Brooklyn, New York. He was protesting in front of Trump Tower. But honestly, those protests don't feel like they're going to get anywhere. So I don't know if other people have this question, but I, I definitely have that question. And I, I wanted to add one more thing, if, so I'm going to keep two. Um, I don't understand, and this is especially a question for our journalists up there, I do not understand why we allow the other side to co-opt language to change the meaning of things. Why do we let the Affordable Care Act become Obamacare? Why does the New York Times write Obamacare? Why do we let that happen? Why does climate change come from global warming. How do we let that happen? How do we let the estate tax become the death tax? This is stuff that we let happen. And when we let it happen, it changes people's opinion. Climate change sounds very, very like it's just changing. Global warming sounds a lot more concerning. The Affordable Care Act is about people having affordable care. Obamacare sounds like you're against Obama. Why do we let this happen? We need to pay attention to that kind of language because it's changing people's opinion. So I'd like to know how our journalists up here feel about that and why we're letting that happen. And then secondarily, I'd love to know what to do. Well, in, in uh, uh, gambling has become gaming. Another, uh, by the way. You well, we don't do that, right? No, we don't. We're good on that one. We do call it gambling. Um, but it, it's, you know, part of it is habit. We have an editor, Jeff, who he's big on that. It's, it's gambling, damn it. And so he watches out for it. And if, you know, there's an element, it's not whim, but chance. But I'll tell you, you, you made me think twice about Obamacare. People adopted it because it became part of the language. But your point is well taken. It's about affordable care. Um, I'll tell you, I, I know this sounds... See, it, it's tough to say because the two places I've spent most of my life, the Boston Phoenix, well, not 25 years, and at GBH, we pay attention to what people say. And... So start with us. <laughs> you don't like stuff, or you have a beef. Um, I'll tell you, the guy, you can email Adam, you can email me. Phil Rado, the general manager, you know, the VP for news at GBH, he reads everything he gets. He passes it along to us. You know, we're, quote, encouraged to respond. We know we're supposed to respond. I think most of us want to respond. You know, again, my corny community action it helps. It, 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 it helps, and it, at least, and by the way, I assume this is true of our competitors at, at, at WBUR as well. Um, I think if you reach out to public, you've got to start somewhere. 
start with public media. Hold us more accountable. You know, we sort of love being held accountable because it shows, I, I mean that seriously, it shows people care. So the editorial, we would love to be under GBH or the Boston Globe or BUR or CNN, but you have a voice. And so when you see something, you have social media today. So you call it the Affordable Care Act and tell your friends and all your friends on social media to call it that. This is where the movement happens today in media. It's time to disrupt. It's time to disrupt a lot of things that aren't being heard. And you each have the power to do that with your voice in social media. And, and to join things, you got two great ones right here. One's called Mothers Out Front. <laughs> And one's called inner city weightlifting. But feel empowered. I know today a lot of people who were not for Trump, and we are in Cambridge, um, are feeling very hopeless and despondent, and there's despair, which is why we invited Jill up here. And, and, and don't feel that. Take the power back. Take it back and, and say what you want to say and use the tools that the media has given us. And don't be the silent majority say what you need to say, and, and get active. I would just say, uh, at least for myself personally, I would pick an issue and go deep. There's way too much that, that, that is at stake that, that, that is, is, can potentially go wrong. I'd pick an issue and go deep, and, and then you can make a real change within that rather than trying to do too much. We do want to be brief. I just want to very briefly caution Adam and Peter against sentimentalizing some previous era of journalism when we all read one paper and it was good. In 1844, there are lots of local newspapers. There are probably just all those thousands of newspapers were probably just as kooky as a lot of websites are. There's no question. Everything is changing. It is changing. But the best answer to concerns with the level of communication definitely is Kelsey's answer. There's no question that organization is the answer to distortion. And I'll mention that Jonathan, John, John and Kelsey aren't the only ones. I have a populist website, favoritepoem.org. We need money too. And it has everything, it has everything to do with public education, with the democracy, the demos is the ruling class and the art of poetry. Organization is a realistic, pragmatic answer to questions that can become kind of fuzzy. For example, why couldn't the polls be more accurate this time? An election or two ago, we were saying the polls are too accurate. People are not bothering to vote because the polls are so accurate. Let's not think about that. Let's think about practical matters like an immigration attorney who knows that these first appointments are causing immense danger, real practical risks to particular families that she knows about. That has to have organized resistance. Thank you. We're gonna take, um, oh, we're gonna take a few more questions and then I'm gonna ask one last word from all our guests. So hang in with us for 10 more minutes. Um, I'm not sure if this is, if you guys can hear me. Um, wait, can you hear me? Yeah. Well, okay. This is going back, way back, to what you guys said about community and communication. So I'm, my name is Michael, by the way, to everybody. I'm a first-generation kid 
of my family here. My family's over from Ethiopia. Um, I was raised here in Cambridge. I, uh, sorry, if I, I'm a little. I get nervous yeah. all the time. So I'm from Cambridge and, and from Malden. I can moved over, but I, growing up, I never dealed with, I, I did every now and then with other kids, racism and, and eyes towards me and looks, you know, um, but I now, I go to a school where there's a lot of, there's a lot of people who are, they were, they've grown up in a place much worse than me. And I see them and I, I see them as the same level as me. They're on the same level as me. So I'm, I, I, I pretty, I'm just going to get to the point. I was, <laughs> I was walking, ever since the election, things have just seemed, it's only been a day. Things have seemed, I want to say tougher. It's, it's like the air is like thicker, there's tension. Even, I can't even say good morning properly to the cross guard without thinking, oh, what, is, what are they thinking of me? I can't go on the train thinking like I used to. Um, but on my way here, it was, as, as I said, I'm from Cambridge, so I feel comfortable around here. I... I was looking for this very spot, and and me and my friend over there were lost. We were, <laughs> we were walking around aimlessly. I I asked somebody for directions, and as I was going to ask them, she was she was a young white lady. As I was going to ask her for directions here, she looked she looked scared. I was like, the the amount of thoughts that went through my head were like it was infinite. I was thinking. I'm not even from from a scary place, let alone I don't I don't think I seem like a scary person. And when I had my hood on, sure, but when I like I managed she tried to run away, I kind of made her come to me. I was like, I need to ask you this, I'm lost. And she once she realized I was just a normal non-threatening person, she she opened up kind of, she smiled. She she, she, it was just, it looked like we were already friends and I had met her already, pretty much. And I just want to, like, I want to understand why, why we have to look at each other in such ways as, like, oh, like I would see a person and just guess, like, what they do, how they act, whether they're a gang member, a terrorist. Or and I've got friends of many backgrounds. I've got a friend. I've got a couple friends here at Harvard. I've got friends in Northeast, and, and they all we all talk about this, and it's 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 maddening. It's very maddening. It's I've been, I've been here for I've been alive for 22 years, and seeing it seeing it as I'm this age now, it's it it kind of hurts. It's. I've I've seen it I've seen it before Trump but it's it's I uh, I can't even describe it. it's I I want to tell you it's not fair yeah it's it's not it's fair not at fair. all at all and I'm not I'm not necessarily I can't excuse my fail at code switching um, my it's it's I'm not 
necessarily mad or heated or coming at you guys as like a group of white people. I'm coming to you guys as a group of, as a community, as people around here, and just wondering why we can't we can't look at each other as just as not you know vile people or animals. That's it. Sorry. So you you absolutely can be and should be mad. Uh, this is something. It, what you said is, is incredibly real, and I think for too much of the country, we we've tried to hide from it, and we've, we haven't addressed it, and we haven't acknowledged it. If there's one good thing that can happen from this election is that now it's time to acknowledge it. This is real. I've been, uh, since I started this organization, I've been pulled over so many times, never by myself. I've been pulled over while parked in a parking lot, and I was the only one who didn't get ID'd. I've been pulled over for stopping. I see the, the police. I stop. I wait the full, I, I think I waited five seconds just to make sure. I get pulled over, the road has a slight bend to the right, and they pull me over saying I didn't use my right turn signal. Uh, and it was how egregious it was. Again, I didn't get ID'd, the two students I had in the car got ID'd. This is incredibly real, and I think that, you know, before I started this up, I never fully understood it. And I think that's the challenge, is how do we change narratives? Because if you can change the narrative about who people are, who communities are, you start to change the interactions and the outcomes. You start to change the way people think about each other. And what's unfortunate is that you can't do that unless people have a reason to connect. And, and that's the challenge, and, and, and it's sad. We see it all the time. Um, you know, I, I look at the whole uh, opioid epidemic and this war on, and, and before that it was the war on drugs. We have so many students that have gotten locked up for such minor things. Now it happens in more affluent communities, white communities, and now of a sense we need help. You know, I've never been more furious that something's actually getting some, some correct help. But it took it happening to white affluent communities for that to happen. And I think that that's really the, the value of perspective. We need people to understand it. And, and again, I would just say, you know, me for one, how proud I am that you just said everything you did and how much courage that takes. And, and you shouldn't... You shouldn't you shouldn't have to apologize for, for being mad or, or you know, if, if I ever said something that, that someone found offensive, I want them to call me out. We need to be able to understand each other. So I just want to thank you. Thank you for, for holding this, this whole thing right here. I, if I didn't find out about this, I don't know what, what I'd be doing right now or where I'd be going. I also... I heard this and I just I just thought yes I'm coming I know it's it's gonna be great so and this is this is way more than I even I signed up for so it's it's great. You you gave us you you just gave us more than we've given you. I I just want to say uh, quickly that um, you shouldn't have to be the person who uh, introdu- introduces yourself. To some, that shouldn't be on you, but I applaud you for uh, for introducing yourself, not only to us, but to the woman who you were looking for directions to say, here I am, I'm lost, this is me. We should all be modeling the same thing. You're an inspiration. Thank you. And don't you leave because everyone's going to want to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you.
So uh, I individuals who have um, who are on different sides of the divide are going to be engaging. Uh, we've been wondering, are there going to be battles on all these points? I think uh, I'm looking at Kelsey now because one area that uh, I think there's good evidence that there will be a battlefield is environmental policy. Um, and we have you here, so I wonder whether you could just educate us a little bit, give us a quick primer. Uh, one, one topic that um, you hear uh, on the, in the media is the um, climate hawks referring to uh, uh, climate regulations, this buzzword, uh, which I presume are um, coal regulations, fracking regulations, uh, pollution regulations as being job killers or as being um, having a major effect on our economy and that that's going to be changed under a Trump um, and, uh, and uh, unified Congress. So there is, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of that thrown out there uh, from that sector. And could you please uh, give us your interpretation of a couple of those key elements when they say that? What are they referring to? What are these things, and what are their significance? Um, are, is there some truth to this that, that some of these environmental regulations um, are substantially affecting employment, particularly in some of the sectors that, uh, that are in the Trump camp? Well, well, there's sort of a lot there. Um, I guess, you know, uh, I'll start with what your, the last part of your question, which was, is there truth to environmental regulations affecting employment in certain parts of the country? The answer is absolutely, of course, there, there is some truth to that. Um, there's always, almost always a little bit of truth to any, almost any statement, I should say. Um, so, yes, there is some truth to that. I mean, that there's no doubt but that, um, you know, we're going to have a lot of communities hit very hard by the closing down of coal plants and coal mines. Um, having said that, that is a trend that is inevitable um, for all kinds of economic reasons, and the regulations may be speeding it up a little bit, but the notion that there's been a war on coal is, uh, is really a specious one. In fact, coal is on its way out because natural gas is, um, is so plentiful and inexpensive as a result. Um, but I think w for the most part, when there's this sort of, uh, you know, regulations are bad for, uh, for the economy, m most of the time um, it's a BS argument. Um, in fact, uh, you know, if, if we are not protecting our health um, as a society, then the economic costs of that are extraordinary and are often not ever taken into consideration. So um, there are all kinds of benefits to having really smart regulations that protect public health and public safety. And, and those who are arguing that there aren't, uh, for the most part, are lying, and they are doing it to protect their own uh, financial self-interest. Um, I don't know. The other part of your question was about. Uh, would that was that a, okay? Okay. I think we're going to take one last question. We're going to wrap up. Um, you know, uh, when you're up all night, your mind kind of starts going into strange places, and um, uh, like so many of us who were up all night last night, 
I was having all these, you know, couldn't, just couldn't stop the chatter and the, the darkness. And um, one of the things that I thought about was, um, I, I, and I just don't know if this is very, very weird, but, um, you know, I was reading various accounts of, uh, about, uh, for the whole week before the election of having to do with um, that Trump is going to be on trial for fraud in relation to his university coming up, and that Trump had, it's some people believe and have some evidence that he's had liaison with various, with the mob and with the Russian mob and other, thi other people that are saying that um, there are, you know, one woman who said that he raped her when she was 13, she was afraid to go forward, but her lawyer was discussing sort of the generic issue. And I started thinking, oh my God, you know, things could happen any minute the way this election has been that could actually end up um, s somehow eliminating him before he even starts. And if that happened, that would leave something that might be much more dangerous, and that's Pence. Because the difference, um, well, I, 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 well, I'll complete the thought and then say the question. The thought is, um, it seems to me that Pence, who appears so charming and conversational and reasonable, the problem is that he has, a, he has some very, very dangerous uh, perspectives, of course, and he's very intelligent, whereas Trump is ignorant. So it seems to me that in the end, Pence would be much more dangerous. And so this was sort of haunting me in the night as I was thinking through some of this, and I was just dying to get some perspectives on it. I agree. <laughs> I agree, too. <laughs> I would say Trump's going to do whatever is best for him, and that's what we have to worry about. I think if something that Pence wants to do is not best for, for Trump and what, what he wants and what's best for his business, then, then Trump's not going to let him do it. So I think ultimately he will you know, maintain that, that kind of power, but it's all going to be based on what's best for him and his business. I haven't seen at one point him care about anyone other than himself. Earlier in the campaign when Paul Manafort was still officially the campaign manager, he said in an interview that Trump really wants to be the chairman of the board as president, that he doesn't want to be the CEO or the COO, and that basically whoever the vice president was was going to be the de facto president. So that's Mike Pence. Uh, Paul Manafort has you know, been jettisoned, and maybe he'll come back into the fold. But I think that um, the, the thing that you fear may already be set to take place. You guys have been a super patient and active crowd. I feel like we all needed to come together tonight. I thank all our panelists for your time tonight and for being here. And Robert Pinsky, if you're not too tired, we'd love to hear one more time from you. This is a very short poem by Czesław Miłosz, the Polish poet, who lived through Nazi occupation of his country. And after the Nazi occupation, the Stalinist regime took over his country. And this is a poem, Czesław, for the next 20 years of his life, after he left that regime, lived in Berkeley, California, where I got to know him and work with him a bit. And this is a translation I created with Czesław of his poem called Incantation. And it's important to say that the title is Incantation, and Czesław wanted it to be very clear that this is not a description of the world as it is, but a description of the world as he believes it has the potential to become. 
incantation. Human reason is beautiful and invincible. No bars, no barbed wire, no pulping of books, no sentence of banishment can prevail against it. It establishes the universal ideas in language and guides our hand so we write truth and justice with capital letters, lie and oppression with small. It puts what should be above things as they are. It is an enemy of despair and a friend of hope. It does not know Jew from Greek or slave from master, giving us the estate of the world to manage. It saves austere and transparent phrases from the filthy discord of tortured words. It says that everything is new under the sun, opens the congealed fist of the past. Beautiful and very young are philosophia and poetry, her ally in the service of the good. As late as yesterday, nature celebrated their birth. The news was brought to the mountains by a unicorn and an echo. Their friendship will be glorious. Their time has no limit. Their enemies have delivered themselves to destruction. Gather, that's the theme right now. Gather, activate, be pragmatic, find things that you believe in, and uh, thank you for coming. And that is going to do it for this episode of The Scrum. Thanks to Heidi Legg and everyone who showed up at the Brattle Theater to make sense of the presidential election and what it means for the future locally and nationally. And as always, thanks to you for listening. We'll be off next week for Thanksgiving, but back the week after that with another new episode. Our producer is Jason Tereski. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Mm-hmm.